Okay, it's been a while since I posted it, and I apologize for that. Um, we're going to start with the chapter on deviance, and the 17th edition is chapter 10, and the earlier editions is chapter 9. So if you see a reference to chapter 9 in the uh, study guides or something like that, it's still the chapter on deviance. Um, actually, I want to warn you from here out to the rest of the course, it's very interesting stuff. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. Deviance is defined in the book on page 248 as the recognized violation of cultural norms. I actually don't like that definition. Deviance can be a violation of a social norm, like driving 35 in a 25 mile an hour zone, or it could be a violation of something cultural like standing on your desk and screaming nursery rhymes in the middle of class. You might think from my example that cultural deviance is trivial, but in fact, not at all. If you do cultural deviance often enough, you will be labeled as mentally ill or insane. And when you get labeled that way, they can really mess with you because they can start messing with your brain instead of just locking you up or putting you in prison. So there's a big difference there between a social violation and a cultural violation. The other thing I want you to realize about deviance is how contextualized it is. And a wealthy person in their living room at Rancho Santa Fe doing cocaine is usually not considered deviant. But a, a inner city youth doing crack is. So... Uh, it's really interesting to think about the context of deviance, okay? The first thing I want to talk about is on page 249 in the book. It talks about the biological context. Again, I actually don't like that either because from a sociological perspective, there is no biological context to deviance. This really should be called the biological approach. And historically... This is a really important thing, actually, because it's still around today. We tend to define deviant acts as biological in origin. So if you suffer from anxiety or depression, that's assumed to be caused by a genetic flaw. Uh, although, from a sociological perspective, it's just as likely caused by uh, social situations. And living in a society, as I've mentioned before, that literally drives people crazy. Anyway, under the biological context, the first thing they talk about is the work of an Italian doctor named Cesare Lombroso, who uh, assumed or actually theorized that you can tell who's a criminal by the way they look. And if you uh, want to look up a book called The Mismeasure of Man by Stephen Jay Gould, it's a great book. It's a history of IQ testing. He's got examples in there of Lombroso's criminal faces. Uh, I think you, you could just do a search for Lombroso's criminal faces on your computer. You should be able to find really interesting depictions, photographs of people who he considered deviant. So that one group of murderers supposedly look the same, another group of burglars look the same, another group of people who declared bankruptcy fraudulently also supposedly look the same, and all different from each other. 
So this is obviously ridiculous, but that was science in the 19th century. And again, the idea that deviance is rooted in biology is still with us. So it's really important, even though it seems absurd. In around 1949, a guy named William Sheldon argued that general body type might predict criminality. And he concluded, this is also on page 249, that criminality was most likely among boys with muscular athletic builds. Then Sheldon Gluick and Eleanor Gluick confirmed Sheldon's conclusion. In other words, they agreed that muscular athletic boys were criminals, but cautioned, according to the book, this is the quote, cautioned that a criminal bill does not necessarily cause or even predict criminality. Parents, they suggested, tend to be somewhat distant from powerfully built sons, who in turn grow up to show less sensitivity towards others. Now this is the height of stupidity. We're all born little babies, and no one reaches their full development physically until at least the age of 18, and sometimes later. So it's absurd, the idea that parents uh, treat powerfully built sons with less sensitivity. So again, we have a biological explanation for deviance that is just completely stupid. And... Um, 1970s, there was a similar idea, this is not in the book, but that uh, aggression was caused by men with an extra Y chromosome. Some men do have an extra Y chromosome, they're XYY instead of XY, and the two X chromosomes means a female, an X and a Y chromosome means a male, and the assumption is males are more aggressive than females, and so with an extra Y chromosome, you're even more aggressive and likely to be a criminal. This is also completely ridiculous because we all know that women fight too and tend to be pretty vicious at times. And so the idea that your biological makeup determines how aggressive you are uh, in that example is just completely absurd. So I don't like to call the biological context because that implies that there is one and from the examples they give here, it's really quite the opposite. By the way, uh, I've mentioned this book before, but according to a book by um, Hernstein and Charles Murray, Hernstein's name I think is Richard Hernstein, and Charles Murray called The Bell Curve, uh, some groups are just smarter than others. And that explains why some groups do well in society and others don't. This is, again, in the tradition of biological determinism, okay? I use that phrase, biological determinism, and you might see it show up on tests. Biological determinism is the idea that your genetic or physiological makeup determines your behavior, and of course, sociologists tend not to argue that. Actually, most biologists tend not to argue that, but it still gets a lot of play in popular culture and literature. We're going to skip the section on personality factors, and we're going to go to the social foundations of deviance. And I think I'll stop there for a minute and give you the second recording in, in a minute. 
Okay, let's continue our discussion of deviance. This is chapter 10 in the 17th edition. This is uh, obviously for Sociology 101. And now we'll talk about the sociological approaches to deviance. Okay, and uh, we can do this in order. Number one, uh, deviance is not biological, not in the body. It's not psychological, it's not in the head, and it's not a negative term in sociology, any violation of a norm, any anything that society deems a violation of norm is deviant, and that's all there is to it. Um, so deviance is not in the person, but it's not even in the act. It's in the societal definition of the act. Uh, an example would be a... Um, a group of rich kids steal a car, it's called joyriding, and they're not considered deviant. A bunch of poor kids steal a car, it's called grand theft auto, and that's deviance. So it's not in the act, it's in the societal reaction to the act. Another nice example, and you can look this up, in 1937 in Sneedville, Tennessee, a 22-year-old man named Charlie Johns married a nine-year-old girl named Eunice. Um, this was a legal marriage back then. Uh, actually, it was controversial, and they changed the law shortly after that, but since it was a legal marriage, um, it could not, at the time, be considered deviant. Uh, it was a violation of a cultural norm, but it wasn't a violation of a social norm. So, yeah, you can look up pictures of the happy couple. He's obviously a grown man, and she's really a little girl. They were married for decades, and she had, I think, a bunch of children with him. I don't know how many. But uh, it's, from our perspective, of course, he's a pedophile. So it's in the societal reaction to the act. Okay? All right. Now, um, we'll go over some, um, the three major theoretical approaches to deviance. Those will be structural functionalism, and symbolic interaction, and social conflict theory. The structural functional approach begins on page 251. And, of course, they talk about Durkheim. And Durkheim actually argued that deviants, all societies need to define certain acts as deviant acts, need to identify certain people as having committed those acts, and need some way of sanctioning those people for what they've done. So that, in a sense, deviance is functional for society. And we think of deviance as something to get rid of, but if we got rid of one deviant act, like smoking marijuana, we often come up with other deviant acts, like going to the beach these days, right? So there's always something that's defined as deviant, and deviance is actually functional for society. In fact, Durkheim articulated four functions of deviance, which are on page 251. The first one is that deviance affirms cultural values and norms. The book says, any definition of virtue rests on an opposing idea of vice. There can be no good without evil and no justice without crime. So deviance is needed to define and support morality. That's number one. 
Number two, responding to deviance clarifies moral boundaries. A good example of that is the uh, Rodney King verdict. I don't know if you remember this. Rodney King was a black motorist who was pulled over for a traffic violation and for no apparent reason was severely beaten by four police officers while another six stood around and watched. This is actually caught on camera, the first police abuse of a person of color caught on camera. And uh, it went to trial, and the jury somehow found the police officers not guilty of assault. There was an upcry across most of the nation because it was really a horrific crime. And so the federal government stepped in and charged him charged the police officers with, quote, violating Rodney King's civil rights. So they had another trial, and then they were found guilty. So basically, by public um, action, they were forced to find him guilty because responding to deviance clarifies moral boundaries. People wanted to make clear that this is not something they would put up with. So that's the second function of deviance. A third function of deviance, responding to deviance brings people together. It actually creates social unity. Uh, The best example of this, and actually the book has a different example, but the best example of this is the terrorist attack of September 11, 2001, because after that, everybody was uh, patriotic Americans, flying American flags and singing uh, patriotic songs before movies and everything like that. Um, I even flew a flag. I I made a mistake. I got an Iraqi flag by mistake, and people were throwing rocks at my windows and calling me names, and I finally realized I had the wrong flag. Anyway, um, and the fourth function of deviance is that deviance encourages social change. If enough people commit a deviant act, it becomes normal. For example, smoking marijuana, which has been legalized in several states already. Um, So those are the four functions of deviance. A related idea to that is um, a book by Kai Erickson called Wayward Puritans. That's described in your book on page 252. Uh, By our standards, Puritans were not deviant in any sense but they did have some, quote, crime waves. And the one you've heard about is the Salem Witch Trials. This is a good example of women who were, obviously, they weren't witches, but they were accused of being witches for things that would be barely noticeable today, um, if if at all. And and they were, of course, uh, punished for it. So even the Puritans had deviance, which shows you that all cultures have deviance. Structural functionalism is also related to something called social strain theory, which is also on page 252. That is a uh, a concept by Robert Merton. And social strain theory says that deviance results when there's a gap between the means and the ends of any society. For example, and I think I'll stop right there and pick it up in a minute, so forgive me. Hello, one-on-one students. 
I'm finally back to talk about Robert Merton's social strain theory. <clears throat> social strain theory is a variant of the structural functional approach to deviance. That's the first sociological approach in the deviance chapter that's discussed. We already gave the basics of the structural functional approach. This one's a little more specific. Robert Merton argues that when there's a gap between the cultural goals in the society and the institutionalized means to achieve those goals, that causes social strain, S-T-R-A-I-N, which leads to deviance. You're best off looking at the chart, figure 10.1 in the chapter, that shows you the cultural goals and the conventional means. It's a two-by-two two chart. Let me give you an example of what he's talking about. A cultural goal would be finishing college. The means available would be financial aid or the money that you need to finish college. When there's a gap there, which there is, that causes strain. The strain may take the form of anxiety, which is often considered a mental illness, which is part of the deviance chapter that we'll talk about later. Uh, I don't really consider it a mental illness. I consider it a normal response to the society we've created. But that's just my opinion, of course. Anyway, when there's a gap between the goals and the means available to achieve those goals, that causes strain, which leads to deviance. So you can see that on the chart, you if you accept the goals and accept the means, you are a conformist. So if you accept the goal of graduating college or getting a, a good job and accept the means of getting a college education to achieve that good job, you are a conformist. If you accept the goals but reject the means, you are an innovator. An innovator would be a drug dealer, or a burglar. They accept the goal of making money, but they reject the institutionalized means of achieving that goal. If you reject the goal and accept the means, you are a ritualist. Now that might sound weird. Why would you accept the means if you reject the goals? Well, you might know people who go to church every week, not because they want to worship God, but because they want to see their friends or because they're expected to go, that would be a ritualist. Or perhaps you've had a teacher who rejected the goal of educating you, but accepted the means of making money, so they go through the motions. That's an also a ritualist. So that's a conformist we've gone over, an innovator, and a ritualist. The last one is a retreatist. That's a person who rejects both the goals and the means. So that would be your dysfunctional alcoholic or a drug dealer. You also see a fifth box where if you create new goals and means, you are a rebel. Okay? Now, there's a problem with this typology. Let's think back to the Milgram experiment. That was in a chapter on groups and organizations. 
where the people thought they were shocking someone with enough voltage to kill them and went through it anyway. If I were to ask you what box they would fit into, you might say they were conformist, right? They accept the goal of furthering the cause of science and accept the means of doing the experiment to achieve that goal. But if I asked you if you respected the person doing that, you would say no, because they're rejecting the goal of thinking for themselves or of treating people well. So you could say of the same person that they're a conformist or an innovator or even a ritualist. In other words, the problem with this typology is, and this is something we've talked about before, there's always more than one relevant goal or value in a situation and always more than one relevant mean or norm to achieve that goal. So you really can't label people with these boxes, okay? I mean, you can't do it in any objective sense. People do it all the time. But you need to be careful about applying these labels to people. And I think that's something you should learn. This is a useful way of thinking about deviance, but it's better understood as a way people label others and not as an objective category that fits people. Okay? So that's the structural functional approach. We're going to skip deviant subcultures on page 253, and we're going to go to the symbolic interaction approach to talking about deviance. The symbolic interaction approach, as you recall, I hope, from chapter one, is a micro-sociological approach that looks at everyday interaction. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in this section here. So uh, the first thing that we learn under the symbolic interaction approach is labeling theory. And labeling theory, this is on page 254, by the way. Labeling theory is the idea that deviance and conformity result not so much from what people do as, to, from, as how from others respond to their actions. And labeling theory is divided into two categories, primary deviance, which is the initial deviant act. For example, the uh, what I used before is the rich kid stealing a car. The initial deviant act is stealing the car. That's primary deviance. Secondary deviance is the societal to reaction to the act and consequent internalization of the label. When you internalize a label, you think of yourself as fitting that label. So with rich kids who steal a car, the societal reaction is joyriding, and they're not labeled deviant. They don't think of themselves as deviant. For a poor kid stealing a car, the societal reaction is grand theft auto. They are labeled as deviant, and they think of themselves as deviant. So secondary deviance is a very important idea because when people get labeled a certain way, they intend to become the label. We have an institution in our society that labels everybody a certain way, and people tend to internalize the label by around the age of 10, according to one book I've read. The institution I'm talking about is school. School labels people as good students, mediocre students, or bad students at the earliest ages of their careers, or careers as students, and people tend to internalize those labels. All of you had friends in high school who you knew to be smart people, but were defined by that school institution as not smart and actually internalized the label. 
people like that will often say things like, I'm uh, street smart, but I'm not book smart, or something like that, which is nonsense, because smart is smart, okay? Uh, I had a student at UCSD years ago who said, told me she's not book smart, she's street smart. And I said to her, you know, you wouldn't last 15 minutes on the street. You might be mall smart, but you're not street smart. Anyway, uh, labeling theory is a really good example of how people are socially constructed to think of themselves as deviant people or not. So that's labeling theory and primary and secondary deviance. The next thing the book talks about is stigma. Stigma is a concept from Irving Goffman. You recall Goffman? He was the one who came up with the dramaturgical model in the chapter on social interaction. A stigma is a powerfully negative label that greatly changes a person's self-concept and social identity. And in sociology, your self-concept is often thought of as the result of your social identity, not something you're just born with or not your personality, but how you are seen as others. Okay? So... That is stigma. A stigma is basically a negative master status. Now, I actually talk a lot about stigma, much more than the book does, because it's a really interesting topic. The word stigma comes from the Greek word for blemish. So a stigma is basically a blemish. There are three kinds of stigmas, okay? There are blemishes of the body, like being physically disabled or blind or deaf something like that. The second type of stigma is blemishes of character. Uh, until recently, being gay was considered a stigma or being mentally ill is still considered a stigma or being an ex-con is a stigma. And third are tribal blemishes for membership in a pariah group. Pariah is another word for outcast. So if you're a member of an outcast group, like a Jew in an anti-Semitic society or a black person in a racist society, that could be a stigma also. Now, your stigmas can be either discovered, in other words, people know about your stigma, or discoverable, people don't know about your stigma, but they might learn about it. If people know about your stigma, they treat you weirdly, and so the response to a discovered stigma from the stigmatized person is tension management. People don't know how to deal with you, and you have to deal with that tension. The way people tend to treat you like a circus freak if they know that you have a stigma. What's actually a little more interesting is the discoverable stigmas, the idea that people might know about you, because in that case, you have to practice what Goffman calls information control. You have to manage the understandings, the knowledge people get about you in order to hide your stigma. So if you made friends at the psychiatric ward when you were admitted, you don't tell people that. You say you met in school or something like that. I had a friend in graduate school years ago who I knew him for a few years and I kind of figured out after a few years that he was gay. I didn't say anything because I didn't care. Uh, 
but I just knew it. Well, we were going to a conference, and this is about five years into our friendship, uh, on a plane, and he's talking, and he mentioned being gay, and I didn't respond because I already knew. And he said, did you know I was gay? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, how'd you know? Is it the way I dress or the way I look? And I think he was afraid of being a stereotype or something. I said, no, nothing like that. He said, well, then how'd you know? And I said, well, I've known you five five years. I don't know where you're from. I don't know what you like and what you don't like. I know very little about you. And I realized after a while that you were practicing information control. And I figured the only reason you would do that is because you were gay. So, for example, I'd see him on a Monday and I'd say, oh, you know, how was your weekend? And he would say, good. I would say, what you do? And he'd say, oh, you know, just went out with some friends. And I would say, oh, okay. And where'd you go? And he said, oh, you know, just to a bar. So he never said which friends or which bar, you know, and things like that. So I knew he was practicing information control. Anyway, Goffman has a whole book called Stigma. It's a really excellent book. I used to use it at UCSD, and students would have to write papers about it. And in their first drafts, they hadn't finished the book yet. They would get very angry at him and say, uh, oh, everybody's stigmatized, and who's he to call people um, stigmatized or not stigmatized? It's not until the end of the book that Goffman makes his point which is the point I want you to remember, that all of us at one time or another are, we're all discoverable. We all have stigmas we like to hide, and we all of us practice information control at times and at times tension management. This is related to the idea of ritual competence, which goes back to the earlier work on the dramaturgical model. So, for example, if you don't know the answer to a question in class, you practice information control. You don't make eye contact with the teacher, so the teacher won't call on you. And if you do get called on, and it turns out you don't know the answer and you feel you should, you'll practice information control and say something, or, I'm sorry, you'll practice tension management. They say something like, "Uh, I had a lot to do this weekend, and I didn't get around to doing the reading, something like that. <clears throat> so Goffman takes this category of stigmatized people and normal people. He actually uses the word normal. And at the end of the book, he just destroys the distinction, and basically says, we're all people who are at times, uh, we're, we all have discoverable stigmas, and at times we all have our stigmas discovered. Uh, He wrote this back in the 1950s. He was way ahead of his time because people back then, again, thought of it as an objective category. And Goffman argues very persuasively it's socially constructed. All right, I'll continue in a few minutes with the rest of the chapter. For now, I'm going to sign off. I hope that that was understandable to you. And I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Okay, this is for Sociology 101. We're still in the chapter on deviance. Last time I spoke about Irving Goffman's concept called stigma. And now we're on page 254. 
and we're talking about retrospective and projective labeling. Retrospective labeling is reinterpreting someone's past in the light of a present deviant label. The example they give is of a priest who was caught sexually molesting a child, and people might say things like, he always did want to be around young children. Of course, the job of a priest is to get people into the church, so of course a priest would spend time with everybody in the congregation, including children. So that's retrospective labeling. The opposite is projective labeling. That's predicting future behavior based on a present deviant label. And about the priest, the book says, people might say something like, he's going to keep doing it until he gets caught. And then the book says, the more people in someone's social world think such things, the more these definitions affect the individual self-concept, increasing the chance they will come true. In previous editions of the book, it simply said, the more people say such things, the greater is the chance they will come true. I'm going to give you that quote on a test, and I'm going to ask you, what theory does this refer to? And it refers to secondary deviance under labeling theory. As you'll recall, I hope, secondary deviance is the internalization of the label. So when the book says about the priest um, that the more people in someone's social world say such things, the greater is the chance these definitions will affect the individual, what they're saying is that he's more likely to internalize the label and keep doing it. Next topic is labeling difference as deviance and how some people argue that Anything someone does that's different is often labeled as deviant for no good reason. What they're referring to here is a book by a guy named Thomas Zaz. He's referred to in the second paragraph under labeling differences deviance on page 255. Zaz wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness. And so the book says that Zaz charges that people are too quick to apply the label of mental illness to conditions that simply avoid to a difference they don't like. The only way to avoid avoid this troubling practice, as continues, is to abandon the idea of mental illness entirely. The world is full of people who think or act differently in ways that may irritate us, but such differences are not grounds for defining someone as mentally ill. So basically, Zaz in my opinion, goes a little bit overboard. I mean, some people do need help and have serious psychological problems. But what he's doing here, I think, is the same thing that Meehan does in his quote about social construction theory way back in the chapter on social interaction. He's, and you want to write this down, Zaz is drawing on both social conflict theory and social construction theory. What he's saying is that people construct deviant behavior as mental illness so that they can force people to conform to their standards. I don't know if I already read this, but if if I didn't, I'll read it again. Or if I did, I'll read it again. Such labeling, Zaz claims, simply enforces conformity to the standards of people powerful enough to impose their will on others. Back in the 1950s, for example, If a woman wasn't happy being at home with her children, she was labeled as mentally ill, and her husband 
could have her committed to a psychiatric ward. The idea was that women were biologically made to have children. Therefore, if they don't like raising them, there's something wrong with them. This is a good example of forcing people to conform to standards of behavior that others make for them. So that's labeling differences deviance. And it's very much connected to the next section. Excuse me. <clears throat> called the medicalization of deviance. The medicalization of deviance is the transformation of moral and legal deviance into a medical condition. There are lots of examples of this. Um, alcoholism used to be thought of as a moral problem. Now it's considered a uh, psychological addiction that's often thought to be based in one's genetic makeup. Same thing with depression. And, and even more so today, uh, completely normal behaviors are being considered um, as illnesses of one way or another. For example, my personal favorite is restless leg syndrome. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but there are commercials on TV about it, and you can actually buy a drug. My daughter, when she was about 12 years old, said, Daddy, I have that. And I said, no, you don't. You just squirm before you fall asleep. You toss and turn. That's normal. So it's really interesting to live in a time when pretty much anything people do is considered a mental illness instead of as, well, people have different ways of expressing themselves, right? So it's really kind of interesting. The medicalization of deviance is also important for reasons that we'll get to in a minute. Well, actually, we'll get to it right now. And that's the next section called The Difference Labels Make. So defining deviance as a moral or medical issue has three consequences. First, it affects who responds to the deviance. If it's a moral problem, you call the police. It's if a medical problem, you call a doctor. Second, it affects how people respond to the deviance. If it's a moral problem, you punish the person. If it's a medical problem, you give them treatment. And third, and most importantly, the labels differ on the personal competence of the deviant person. If it's a moral problem, you're considered to be uh, at least still a normal human being, and while you might be punished, you're considered to be in control of your actions. But once it's considered a medical or psychological problem, then the state can really mess with you and can actually do things to your brain against your will and uh, call it treatment. Uh, a good example of that, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie or the book called One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. It was a book by a guy named Ken Kesey. It was later turned into a film uh, starring Jack Nicholson. And it's the story of a, of a man who is serving a term in jail for some charge like burglary or something like that, and decides he'd have an easier time serving a sentence in the psychiatric ward. So he, he intentionally acts in such a way that he gets placed in a psychiatric ward, and without giving away too much of the story, he it doesn't work out well for him. Because once they label you as mentally ill, they can mess with your brain through electric shock treatments, or what they used to do were things called lobotomies, where they'd actually remove part of your brain. Um, 
And then later they found an easier way of doing that, where they basically deaden a part of the brain. And this is what happens when you get labeled as having a mental illness. So the consequences of the medicalization of deviants are really significant and really important. Next topic we're going to talk about is on page 256, Sutherland's Differential Association Theory. And Differential Association Theory says that deviance results from who you hang out with. If you hang out with people who are considered conformists, you'll conform. And if you hang out with people who are considered deviant, you are more likely to become a deviant. So this is uh, kind of obvious. And yet, what it doesn't take into account is that some people choose to become deviant and intentionally start hanging out with people who are considered deviant. I bet you knew people in high school who made that decision themselves, right? That they would intentionally hang out with a crowd who is considered to be rule breakers of one sort or another, and because they wanted to be thought of as a rule breaker. And that's a really interesting phenomenon. How many people in contemporary society want to be considered deviant? And it's really an interesting idea to think about why people would want to do that. We're going to skip Hershey's control theory on page 256. And the last part of deviance we're going to talk about is on 257. And it's the social conflict theory approach to deviance, which basically says that who or what is labeled deviant depends on which categories of people hold power in a society. So here we have the relationship between deviance and social control or power. It's got a quote under deviance and power from a guy named Alexander Liazos that the people we dismiss as nuts and sluts are typically not as bad or harmful as they are powerless. Bag ladies and unemployed men on street corners are considered deviant, but not corporate polluters or international arms dealers. Then it says social conflict theory explains this pattern in three ways. First of all, laws and norms reflect the interests of the rich and powerful. Secondly, powerful people have the resources to resist deviant labels. And third, the widespread belief that laws and norms are natural and good masks their political character. So, for example, if you steal something from a store, that is a crime, and you are considered deviant. If a store owner charges you more for something than it's worth, and he gets you to pay for it, that's considered good business. So they're allowed to steal from us. We're not allowed to steal from them. And again, that strikes us as normal and good. And yet what it really masks is a power relationship there, right? So that they're allowed to steal from us, but not vice versa. This is very much connected to deviance and capitalism, the next section. And this kind of reiterates what they already said in a way. So what's the relationship between deviance and capitalism? There are several, uh, five, or, five or six examples. First, because capitalism is based on private control of wealth, people who steal from the property of others, especially the poor who steal from the rich, 
are prime examples for being labeled, prime candidates for being labeled deviant. On the other hand, the rich who take advantage of the poor are less likely to be labeled deviant. For example, landlords who charge poor tenants high rents and evict anyone who cannot pay are simply doing business. They're not considered criminals. Secondly, because capitalism depends on productive labor, people who cannot or will not work risk being labeled deviants. So even people who can't work because of an injury of some kind are often considered deviant. Third, and the third example is basically a silly one, because it says, capitalism depends on respect for authority figures, causing people who resist authority to be labeled deviant. I would argue that any society depends on respect for authority figures, and in any society, resisting authority is labeled deviant. So it's got nothing to do with capitalism. Fourth, anyone who directly challenges the capitalist status quo is likely to be labeled as deviant. Such has been the case with labor organizers, radical environmentalists, and anti-war activists. That's really interesting that environmentalists are labeled deviant. Or actually, when I was younger, um, I remember they passed a, a bottle bill in California where bottles would be returned and you'd get a, a couple of cents back for each bottle. And they were trying to curb the throwing away of bottles. And this guy I was talking to said he didn't like that rule. And I said, oh, I, I think it's a good law. You know, it's a good idea to recycle. And this guy looked at me and he said, oh, you're an environmentalist, huh? As if there was something wrong with that. And I just said, yes, I am. <laughs> so, you know, back then, even being to that extent an environmentalist was seen in some people's eyes as deviant behavior. So it's really very interesting. Okay? So you want to make that connection between people being labeled deviant and who's in power. Now I have good news for you. On page 258, till the end of the chapter, you are not responsible for any of it. Where it says white-collar crime, you don't have to read any further. And there's all kinds of things in there. But we're focusing only on the theories and not the more specific examples that the rest of the chapter goes into. So we are done with the chapter on deviance, and the next podcast will concern, we'll start with what I consider to be the heart of the course, chapters four and five, and um, that will be, I think, even more interesting than this chapter, which I hope you found interesting. Until then, I'll bid you good night. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.